3123. You are listening to the Roycast, the internet's only succession fan podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, if you're just joining us, my name is Brendan. I am joined today by my co-hosts. Kate, um, and I'm Gabby. We got the succession trailer, which was exciting for season two. That's right. Succession season two. It's a, it's up around the corner. Logan's got a new cut. He's got a new fade. He's looking pretty good. Yeah. Um, oh, everybody else is looking about the same. Yeah. Two. two. <laughs> what? Yeah. She got a cut. Yeah, her hair's like uh, shoulder length. Uh-huh. Yeah, because she's uh, she's a big power player now. She's got the ear of the president. Um, <laughs> she's going to be Jeremy Corbyn this season. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> That's um, right. By the way, we were noticing this week that uh, HBO still has no official Succession Twitter account. We just want to say, HBO, let us run the Twitter account. Come on. Hire us. Yeah. We are we only require online. That's right. Not that cheap. We only require a million dollars each. I mean, it's a bargain. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. How much do you think those people that run the Netflix Twitter accounts are getting paid? That's right. Exactly. Yeah, when so, you're constantly uh, tweeting about how depressed Netflix as a brand is, so oh they probably God. can't be getting paid that much. So, um, <laughs> one thing we promise, if, one thing we promise, if we get to run the Succession Twitter account, there will be no tweets about depression. None. No, no depression. we won't. We won't try and be woke. You know, we have uh, exactly. I mean, like every day, there's like a news story where it's like, you know, something terrible happens. I remember when, like, you know, AT and T took over you know, like HBO, and they immediately canceled, like, Filmstruck and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is something that uh, Greg is going to do in season two of Succession. You know, it's just in the news. It's all the time. All the yeah. time. But today we're getting into episode two, which is uh, evocatively titled Shit Show at the Fuck Factory. Um, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is sort of the second pilot, kind of. Um, if you are of the opinion, as I think we all are, that the pilot is probably the weakest episode of the series, um, episode two is where the show really starts to kind of come into its own and starts to kind of flush out its world, starts to introduce a lot more of the supporting characters, establish a lot more of the relationships after the pilot, which is principally concerned with the conflict between Kendall and Logan, his father. I, I'd say it's a bottleneck episode, a great episode, as Brendan, you like to talk about, where they're all all the family is stuck in one place together, and so they kind of have to deal and cope with one another um, in real time, which is a lot of fun to watch. Uh, yes, it is. There's such yeah. a good good personalities and lots of dysfunction and some great dialogue so yeah and and this is what sold me on the show you know I saw the first up and I was like I really like this but I've got the bad feeling from the end but after this episode I was like oh I'm so in you know this reminded me a lot of Veep too yeah more so yeah than like the first episode or even later episodes I think this was the most Veep-esque yeah, I think the uh, sort of starting to like broach the, the sibling dynamics and some of the non-family members or sort of adjacent family members coming into the fold and everybody's role, everybody kind of trying to feel out their place in the family now that like the patriarch is temporarily or maybe not incapacitated and we kind of see them floundering and... You know, it's obviously not all serious. It, it feels like a comedic episode to me. The The dialogue is, like, it's very pithy. You have, like, Shivan Roman doing the youngest sibling wrestling fight and, and, and Greg, you know, trying to get the, uh, get a handle on, you know, chain of command, as he says, of who to listen to. I think this was, yeah, this was a really enjoyable episode on a rewatch, especially just picking up on some of uh, the banter that's kind of going on in the hallways. And and then we, um, you know, we, we obviously learn more about the company and Logan and, um, you know, some of the other players like like Jerry and Frank and Carolina. 
Carolina, I was going to say the PR girl. That's a- <laughs> Ava. Hot, hot PR girl. Ava, Carl, American Psycho, as Shiv calls him. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't. I don't like Jerry, but I don't hate Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jerry. That's the uh, that's the great Jay Smith Cameron um, stage actor known for. She has the great role in Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. I don't know if you all have seen that movie with Anna Paquin. I have, but yeah, I don't. I, I don't you, remember it a ton. <laughs> you recommended it to me, Brendan. It's on my list because because of that actress. I mean, I recall the plot line, but like, I need to watch it again because I love uh, um, the Mark Ruff. Well, Mark Ruffalo's in this film as well, but the previous "You Can Count on Me." I loved. You can count on me. Yeah, it was. It's just such a good film about siblings. Similarly, sibling kind of dynamics. But anyways, I need to rewatch this one. I can't even recall the name you just said. Margaret. Margaret. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's also she's unrectify also, which is something. That, yes. Yes, yeah. she is. Thank you. On yeah. what? And it's on that. The show rectify. Oh, okay. Which I haven't finished, but um, I started, like, last year and noticed that she was on it with a not very believable southern accent, but um, she's amazing. Actually, I see that she's born in Louisville, so maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just full of shit because I don't know what a real southern accent sounds like, but... (laughs) Well, we'll walk through the whole episode and we'll talk about Jerry a little bit because she has a, a good bit to do in this episode. But yeah, it's funny, Gabby, how you, you, know, you talk about how funny this episode is, and there is kind of a point where the patriarch is dying, Logan has just suffered a stroke, a hemorrhage, they're not quite sure, and he's in a coma, and he may be dying soon, and although some of them are you know, obviously emotionally upset by this, Shiv seems to be the most sort of emotionally rattled by it. They all quite naturally fall into the rhythm of bickering and jockeying for status. And although the episode is really funny, it struck me how I kind of took that for granted. And you do, after a certain point, just kind of forget that there is sort of a body lying in wait, even as some of these scenes, which are really well blocked by the director, uh, Mark Mylod, who is an HBO veteran and directed, I think, four out of the ten episodes of this season of Succession. Um, and is probably the most responsible for, like, the feel and look of the show after Adam McKay. You know, th- some of those scenes are really nicely blocked where they're in this sort of waiting room uh, with this pane of glass in between them and the room where Logan uh, lies uh, lies in a coma. But it's a really, really good episode, so let's just, I guess, dive right in. You know, it starts with Ken uh, rushing to the hospital to meet his family, where Logan's just had this... Sh- well, they're not really sure it is a seizure or stroke. Uh, they immediately fall to bickering over, you know, Roman Googling uh, what the disease is exactly or what the nature of the calamity that's befallen him is. Right. Um, and, uh, <laughs> they, and that's when you sort of see all these other people start to swoop in around them. You know, um, Ken is there with uh, Jess, who is his sort of, you know, much put upon sort of, I don't know what you would call her. She's an administrative assistant, you know somebody who is like constantly by his side, somebody who's in her life. We don't really get much of a glimpse of, um, no, but she, yeah. she's right there at the beginning. One thing, one thing I want to point out, which I had kind of forgotten is what happened at the end of the pilot and how Kendall finds out. He finds out at the very end while the other kids are actually with him. He finds out at the end of the pilot from Lawrence and right. So, it's like the, the first scene in the boardroom is him trying to negotiate with this this guy Lawrence, who is like the the owner of of this media outfit, and that's the first time that we see Kendall. Really, it's I mean, it's like it's the first scene after the you know the, the misfired urination by yeah, <laughs> and you know it's Kendall really just getting like annihilated by this by this Lawrence mm. character and then just further embarrassed by uh Frank and some of the other people around him saying you know well do you want to call your dad because this deal that was supposed to go through uh didn't and you know Ken is kind of you know it's clear, clearly not what he was expecting he offers uh, I think like a 
a, a vintage Jaguar to be in uh, <laughs> Lawrence's driveway by the end of the day. Like, you know, so this is really like the first time where, I mean, it, it's the first scene of the show. So it really just set the tone in the sense that, yeah, these people have more money than we can possibly conceive of, but that's not always going to get them, you know, what they want. Yeah. The show starts off with him getting shit upon and then it ends with Lawrence further shitting upon him in terms of, you know, letting him know his dad's in the hospital and uh, he's going to, I forget the line, but, you know, he's going to take over. He better watch his back or else, you know, Lawrence is going to take over. It's like I'm going to eat you one by one. Yeah. (laughs) So Lawrence is definitely sort of a foe for Kendall and sort of a foil in terms of competence and and um ability to sort of inspire leadership and so after after that first scene yeah ken is kind of scrambling finally they eventually do get walter on board by offering lawrence a seat on the board and a stupid number a stupid (laughs) number (laughs) yeah so a stupid amount of money yeah, so Lawrence and Lawrence and Ken kind of are in the second episode have a little bit of a thing going on. It's it's secondary to to what's going on in the rest of of the episode, but it's very funny and it um, kind of continues to just like undercut Kendall and his his instincts and his his decisions when it comes to uh, you know dealing with the press and 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 they they get a basket. And Kendall's really trying to keep everything under wraps in terms of Logan's situation and they don't really want anyone to know. They don't want it to get out. The health, the socioeconomic health of multiple continents. <laughs> you know, he says this, he depends on this. He says this to like some nurse in passing as if she gives a shit, you know, like, <laughs> and so, you know, they're trying to keep everything under wraps. At least that's Kendall's MO. And they get like a, a gift basket <laughs> and it's from Lawrence from Walter. And he's like, tells his assistant like can you call him and tell him that i do not fucking appreciate that yeah lawrence is a good example of just like well one it's a good example of sort of like the world building of the show where they set up this person who who is a potential foil or antagonist for ken who doesn't really end up playing that big role in the season's plot although he's constantly there at least through most of the first half of the season but he's somebody they can bring back at a later date. But really what Lawrence does is he serves to kind of illustrate Ken's overall lack, not just of like business sense, but of cunning. He has this fundamental lack of just even strategy that I think Lawrence susses out and is a big part of the reason that he has no respect for him. You know, because in this episode, the interaction between Ken and Lawrence is Ken calling him to say, hey, you know, by the way, you know, don't you fucking dare publish anything about, you know, what's going on with our family, with the company right now, which is almost such a bad way to play that. You think he has to be joking or playing some kind of trick on Lawrence at first, because, of course, you know, (laughs) that just uh, that just antagonizes Lawrence and prompts him to, you know, do just that and write this post show at the fuck factory about the Roy family falling apart in the wake of Logan's hospitalization. So it doesn't have a huge plot effect necessarily, although it does, you know, set off all this speculation. It's going to eventually have ramifications for the company's stock price for Ken's tenure at the company. But it just serves how kind of fundamentally unsuited to this world Ken really is. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any good ideas. He's not that cunning, and he doesn't read people very well either. Completely. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing he could have done, as you already pointed out, is call him and say, don't do this, which is just like begging him to do it, write the article, essentially. But yeah, so So let's talk about let's talk about the main conflict of this episode, which is, you know, what's going to happen to the company? You know, who's going to take the great man's place at the head of this, you know, multi-billion dollar conglomerate? Um, uh, now that, you know, the company is suddenly in this period of crisis, Ken thinks it's going to be him, but the other siblings think, well, actually it probably wouldn't be you because you're the only person that dad directly told he doesn't want running the company as he did in the pilot. So all this sort of speculation is off and everybody is sort of jockeying for position. And one thing that really sets this off, I think is also another conflict that flows over from the pilot where uh, uh, Logan has made this decision that he wants to make Marsha, his new wife, part of the family trust. 
And there's a really key moment sort of early on in this episode that I think triggers a lot of sort of character reactions, which is when Shiv tries to flex and say, well, you know, the doctors here aren't doing such a good job. We're going to have him move to NYU where I know somebody. And Marsha immediately shuts that down. She says, no, I'm the next of kin. It's my decision and he's going to stay here. And Shiv looks like she's totally caught flat-footed by this. She's very used to asserting her status as a Roy and has forgotten that she actually does not have the power in this situation. And I think that sets off, you know, sort of, you know, where Shiv is sort of very emotionally unstable in, early on in this episode. It sets off this uh, reaction in her where she realizes, oh, I actually need to be playing for status here and I need to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, to maintain my position. And that sets off these arguments between her and Roman and her and Kendall and Connor. Uh, that's a great little moment. And uh, I remember when I was rewatching, I watched with my mom. She was like, yes, Marsha, like good for Marsha, you know. But I would just quibble as I do with the characterization of emotionally unstable <laughs> at the beginning. Like maybe she was, you know, obviously she was affected, but I don't think Shiv was emotionally unstable for the first half or the first beginning. I just would sure, struggle with that quick characterization. They were they sure, were all more, shaken up in their so own than the ways. other siblings, yeah. Yeah, and shaken I, up, but emotionally unstable. Ah, I don't think she was that far. Sorry. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, like like when they're in the but, initial waiting room and they're all trying to figure out like was it a hemorrhage? Was it a subdural heat? hematoma like this just ridiculous back and forth that like will have no bearing on on whether or not their dad gets better than trying to find <laughs> ken just again with his just this glibness when he says uh i don't want to be uh playing with uh what does he say don't want to be Doc- doing, the, doing the runaround with dr suny purchased medical school so mm-hmm. that's, like, that's right <laughs> right so they don't think that they're in like you know a nice enough place but you know, Marsha puts her foot down. She's like, no, he's staying here. He'll get better here. I think yeah. that definitely shakes Shiv up a little bit as, you know, the daughter. And, you know, she's in this episode, she's kind of identified as like, well, you're the you're the daddy's girl. You know, he loves you the most. And then her realizing, you know, that no matter what, uh, his wife is going to come first. And also this is this episode sort of further sort of clears up that Connor is a different mom because mm-hmm. I, I know that early on in the episode some Roman suggests like should we call mom and Shiv's like mm-hmm. are you crazy you know like she'll probably just make it worse and then Connor's like oh you know your mom's a maniac she's not a monster which we'll find out later on that she might just very well be a monster but um and then even when they're when they're <laughs> when ken is going over the acn which is the waste arborico um news channel you know it's it's just fictional they're doing like they have like a sample obituary in case you know logan dies and kendall's watching it kendall says to you know his assistant or whoever they need to say something about our mom and and connor's mom yeah so they leave those characters kind of lingering for us and in terms of the women in logan's life you know it's it's, it seems like it's sort of setting up a battle between between shiv and Marsha, which continues into the next episode and then circles around back at the end and and we can see it play out in a way that is uh, a little bit more explosive but yeah i think there's a lot of very relatable family dynamics in this episode that might have been part of the reason why a lot of people picked up on the show this episode or were skeptical about the pilot you know like when shiv and roman are going to talk about whether or not to sign the new uh, change of trust and they go into like this auditorium in the hospital and you know start wrestling like little kids and it's just it's very cute it's very playful (laughs) and tom shiv's boyfriend walks in and sees them and (laughs) i thought it was so weird how he just walks in and he looks terrified and walks out yeah yeah which is again that moment is kind of a holdover of these adam mckay style which is sort of mimicking documentary. You know, it look the, the way the camera swings over to the door meant to sort of look like a moment you weren't supposed to see or something that happened accidentally, which is very much in the Adam McKay style. But that's really almost the last time you see a moment like that, I think, in the show, because the show very quickly moves away from that house style into something that sort of has the documentary texture 
but is very, at the same time, very highly staged and blocked. And on the rewatch, I noticed, too, at the beginning when they're in the waiting room, not in the private waiting room, but the waiting room, they were doing the quick zooms and yeah. the quick close-ups still. as a, you They know, do it throughout the episode, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, again, was, you know, we discussed in the last episode, you know, a lot of Adam McKay's style. I think another character we need to... I need to definitely talk about his cousin Greg. Um, <laughs> big episode for Greg. Yeah, big episode for Greg. Forgot about oh, yeah. the checkers and the plaid and the tartan. <laughs> well, we kind of learned that Greg is ruthless. Like, he may not have the upbringing, and, uh, but, but he's definitely cut out to be kind of part of this world in terms of betrayal and like like he's willing to get it in the mock with it yeah he has this cunning that uh like i said you know that ken doesn't have and i mm-hmm. think it, it you know what this episode shows is it stems from this place of actual need it stems mm. from the fact that you know he's in this room with all these rich people but he's only got twenty dollars in his pocket twenty dollars that he by the way immediately loses <laughs> When Shiv says, oh, can I borrow some cash for a Coke and takes his last 20 without a thought. Um, He's like, well, I have this 20. And she's like, that's fine. (laughs) He's like, I have my last 20. He literally says last and she doesn't notice. He's on the phone with his mom and goes, I just got mugged by Shiv. You know, Greg's story is something we don't have too much elaboration on it. But, you know, he's a he's a sort of a distant connection to the family. His grandfather is Logan's brother. And basically he is here basically sort of actively looking for a handout. You know, he's looking for a job and he is willing to play on whatever little he has to get it. Mm-hmm. Although he does have, you know, this sort of wide eyed look to him and this sort of naive appearance. He is somebody who is hyper aware, I think, of who he is and what his relative status is. And, all, and quite desperately looking for what he can turn to his advantage, if any. And this episode is, you know, one of the first times that he ends up in a situation where he has to make sort of a play and figure out where to cast his allegiances with as he is forced to choose between Roman and Shiv. Even earlier on in the app, before he gets sent out, you know, he's try- trying to sounds so remorseful and (laughs) sympathetic about Logan, but he manages to, I mean, but his whole angle there is, you know, he said I was hired, like, who do I follow up with for my job? (laughs) Like, he's he's willing to, it's it's just really, really funny, that scene. It's like right as Marsha sends him to go get the slippers because he's he's annoying them and clearly, yeah, just angling. (laughs) He's like, oh, it's so sad about Logan, the man who hired me (laughs) for a job, you know, and yeah. It's just like, it's so funny because he's just willing to go there and you're just so embarrassed. I know there's a schadenfreude, there's another word, German word when you're like embarrassed for someone shot in something, but um, (laughs) it's pretty embarrassing. Like, no, it is. It's, but, but you're right. He does have like, you know, he's got some, some chutzpah, like when he, when when he gets to the apartment (laughs) and he doesn't have any money to pay the taxi driver and the doorman is standing there. I was assaulted in there earlier today. Who's going to figure this out? But like one of you needs to figure this out because I don't have any money. And, you know, he's just on a mission. Like he's going to get this job and he's going to do whatever he has to do, embarrass himself. You know, he ends up like lounging in that house for who knows how long, just like on the phone with his mom. And then, you know, Shiv and Roman are trying to um, use Greg to, to sort of play off of each other's own interests. Shiv, um, you know, is obviously skeptical about signing the change of trust. Roman wants to because um, Logan, prior to getting sick, promised him. What did he promise him? COO? Yeah, fired, chief fired operating Frank officer for that. of the company. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, you know, so Roman's trying to get everyone to to sign this so that when Logan gets up, 
you know, he gets the, the what he wants. And so Roman tells Greg to bring back, you know, these papers. And it's also a very funny scene because it's that's kind of like a veep like scene where it's it's he's so much taller than mm-hmm. <laughs> And then doesn't he say something like it, it's like very Jonah esque where he's like, God, I can't I just 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 go get the papers. I can't look at you anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm fucking done with this conversation. Yeah. Um, I, don't know, that, I don't know if you mentioned something about his height, but it just it's just funny and then and then Shiv is calls Greg up while he's at the house and it's like you know don't get the papers after all and then Greg's like fuck like which one of these people do I listen to and ultimately turns up to be totally inconsequential but for him it's like he calls his mom he's like I don't know like who's the more senior sibling I was turned off from Greg from the very beginning because of the whole Jonah thing. I thought like this he would is be another Jonah, yeah. Yeah, and in a lot of ways he is, but you know, a lot of people Greg is their favorite character and I just yeah, I thought it was a little bit too stereotypical kind of like the bit the tall oaf, you know. And, and <laughs> That's not giving him the credit he deserves, as we, you know, have already said. He's cunning. You know, he's willing, yeah. and he's willing to do whatever to. Yeah, I think I, I think it towards the end of, of of the episode, just really quickly, like he comes back and he's like, "So what did they say about me?" And Tom's like, "Are you fucking kidding?" Like, what we were, were all talking about you. All we were talking about. And Tom is another character who kind of comes off as sort of an embarrassing, bumbling idiot in this episode. First, he, you know, he tries to talk to Marsha while she's standing over Logan's body and talk to her about, um, you know, proposing to Shiv. And he just sounds like an idiot. And then, you know, he, he ends up following through on that proposal. It's just in the hospital. And in a very just like, like up to this point, I, I didn't like the character. I still, like, I, I think it was, I, I can't recall the exact moment when I started to really appreciate Tom, but still at this point, I was, like, just annoyed by him. I do think the proposal scene is really nice because in terms of swinging some sort of sympathy for Tom, because, yeah, you do see him kind of embarrass himself with Marsha, who has that great line where she just very, like, diplomatically says, you really need to learn the right time to have these conversations. Yeah. <laughs> but the proposal scene is really nice because he does it like quite dramatically. He just like catches her in the hallway, like drops to one knee and goes, Siobhan Roy. <laughs> and she's immediately taken aback by it. So he's, so he's a little bit cowed there. But then when she does accept the proposal, you know, he has this sort of like boyish glee, you know, at, uh, at his success which she seems to find endearing, if also slightly embarrassing. And so because, I don't know, because Sarah Snook is a, is a very likable actress and because Shiv at this point is still a, a rather likable character, you know, you feel some of that sort of residual affection, I think, for Tom in that moment, even though he's not really done necessarily anything to deserve it. But it's this sort of mix of finding him both endearing and awful at the same time that is what makes that character so fascinating to me. Yeah, and, and something I've noticed about this sh- this show, just not necessarily specific to this episode, is the um, ability of like the any of the Roys to walk into a room and sort of make a knowing look and have whoever needs to be out of the room immediately leave. Um, it's it's something that's a really interesting device, and they use it a lot, and you yeah. don't really notice it, but it's just you know somebody will just give a look, and that happens yeah. at one point in this episode when. Connor brings his girlfriend, who I guess is his. We don't really know yet, but she's not. Willa, yeah. Yeah, Willa is. She's not really his girlfriend. He's there's some sort of you know pay for play situation going on, and so there's there's one point where the siblings and Willa and Tom are all in the room, and they you know they they ask Willa to leave, and they ask Tom to leave, and Tom's like, "Come on, I'm not I'm not the same level as her." Like, please. <laughs> <laughs> Like so, so we see Tom just you know really, really trying and uh, yeah, 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 and that and that brings up this thing I was noticing in this episode about the way that there's a sort of visual motif of the way that the Roys like just colonize a space when they mm-hmm. walk into it, yeah. which of course is a big part of the plot of this episode where they're just like, uh, we have to be waiting around here with everybody else, and their people are busy at work finding you know a space for them. They go upstairs and there's this waiting area that seems to have been totally cleared for them. And then as I'm watching this scene, I notice for the first time in the background, like right over Ken's shoulder, you can see like in the background out of focus, there's this guy on a laptop and it's like, 
is that is is that guy here or does he work for them <laughs> and you're not sure until the very end of the episode there is this quick montage where they're clearing out of the conference room that yeah, that the, the that their people have set up yeah they're clearing out of the war room and that guy with the laptop is one of them and they have set up this huge office where they've done all this work you know getting press releases sent out getting everything ready for the transition uh for ken to take over and those same people are breaking everything down and just moving out of there you know as if they were never there uh, which yeah. i thought was really kind of like eerie and also very specific sort of attention to detail you know, this sort of silent entourage that they have with them at all times right. um, are ready to just sort of take over wherever they decide to go. One thing I really appreciated again on rewatch was Roman in general, just like this episode, like just how funny and how specific and how, I, I don't know, just how perfect he is. Like they go into the auditorium and he's just walking up the stairs, you know, speaking of how they colonize a space and, I, he just he just is so spot on and so funny throughout the sh throughout the episode. And while I do think that he wanted to sign the dress because he wants CEO COO position, I think he also generally like has like wanted to make Marsha feel better. I think he really did. Like he's not the only he's one one of the only pure people maybe not purely jockeying the entire time. Yeah. Um, and I, that could be a misread from me, but like, it's, I don't know. It's funny because Brendan warm, and I were, we were talking about a warm this, character. We were talking about this earlier, actually, in that specific scene where I thought I, I'd forgotten briefly that he was, it was promised COO and that's sort of why he wants to change a trust sign. But it also seemed to me like he, he had some kind of like, not necessarily affection for Marsha, but maybe some by proxy of loving his dad and wanting his dad to be happy it, it didn't seem totally cynical to me although brendan disagreed but now that you said it kate i kind of i kind of think i think he wants everything to be nice and i think he wants them to get yeah. along with Marsha because Marsha is dad's wife and they love dad and they just want dad to be happy and that's also why i see roman as sort of like very much like a younger child character yeah. that's why i think he's younger than than shiv although i think it would be inconsequential It'd probably be just like a few years difference but you know while where shiv is like much more reserved when he's talked to my lawyers you know roman seems yeah he seems to uh you know really want to just be pleasing dad and, and again right that could, that could be purely cynical but i think i think you know they really love their dad it's just an extremely dysfunctional relationship but i do think roman is hilarious in this episode and i think the moment that sold me on this show was the scene when they're in the um private suite the siblings and they're, they're talking about how pretty soon they're gonna have to release a statement the markets are gonna open what the hell are they gonna do and you know their suggestions well you know nothing has really happened he could just have the flu and Kendall's like the flu. We look like we're in the fucking Honolulu airport, and <laughs> there's like flowers everywhere, and everyone's you know cl clearly people are finding out. So they can't just play it off like he's in the hospital because you know he broke his toe or something. But they're trying to see if they can angle it that way. And and Ken is very serious, obviously, about you know how it looks and and the optics of it all. And I think when. Uh, he says, you know, we need to control the narrative. And Roman goes, <laughs> oh, control the narrative. I bet you say that when you come. Like, that scene right there, um, where they're all just, like, tearing into each other. And, and Kendall's, you know, kind of, like, I, I could see also the some people, like, paralleled this show to Arrested Development, which I'm a huge Arrested Development person, and I can never really see it. And I don't really think it's all that applicable. But there, I kind of kind of get it with the siblings where Ken is yeah. kind of playing the Michael where he's like, you know, constantly getting shit on by his, you know, what he perceives as sort of his lazy incompetent siblings, but the siblings are kind of like throwing in his face, you know, you know, you just, you know, you're just a fake leader. Um, wannabe. Well, what's wild is that is how quickly Kendall rolls over in terms of the original, from him going to the war room right at the beginning where they propose that he step up as CEO, and he has this great line which stuck with me and, again, was very Veep-esque. Uh, Talk is just complicated airflow or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, like, I was, like, laughing about that line so hard afterwards. But uh, he says that to know, Jerry, yeah. He, Right, yeah. right. Because they were talking about what his father said throughout the day. He's like, you know, nothing's on paper. Talk, you know, it, right. it's so good. 
But then when he proposes it to the siblings and they're like, no, he just doesn't even like put up a fight at all, which really surprised me again, even knowing the character, because at the end, when when they do come around to the proposal, which they ultimately fulfill, which is him as CEO and Roman, my homie Romy as COO, (laughs) does such a good job of selling it and gets very serious and very powerful in terms of selling that to his family. But he wasn't able to do it like earlier for just himself. I don't know. It's surprising. Again, just like how quickly he rolled over. Like it shows how much influence the siblings have in terms of how he thinks and feels and how they all act kind of enmeshed in this codependent, sick, dysfunctional relationship. But, um, you know, where they're not really individual beings, he's like, I don't know. And that arrangement between for who's going to be CEO and COO ostensibly is after Jerry declines, after Frank declines. So it's not even like really the first choice situation. And we can go into Jerry for a second, but just another way there was Shiv really reads Kendall for filth at one point. (laughs) And it's just, it's such, she just totally nails his pathology. And it's like, oh, yeah. There's nothing. He goes, so he's like, well, why wouldn't it be me? Why wouldn't I be the number one? And Uh she goes, well, you lack killer instinct. You're wet. You're green. You're intellectually insecure. Insecure. You're You're not emotionally strong enough. You have addiction issues. And then he's like totally flabbergasted. And she's like, what? I'm just trying to, you know, use dad's voice. (laughs) And so good. Yeah. It's pretty hard to see uh, Ken just wanting so badly to be as competent as his dad, manage the situation, control the narrative. And then he's got his, you know, younger siblings and even his older sibling, Connor, Connor talks to them too. Connor's, you know, kind of just he, as he call, calls himself is a you know, UN peacekeeper, white helmet. He's not getting involved, but you know he, he never resists a moment to kind of take a jab at, at Kendall but, or, um, we, or propose you know. that he becomes CEO himself. Right. <laughs> well, that's that's unsaid. You know, it's, it's left unsaid. It's unsaid. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> It's so good. Sometimes a peacekeeper has to go shoot a maniac on the perimeter. <laughs> I Which mean, he, every line is comic relief with him. It's so good. Yeah. I was going to say that UN peacekeeper line is a great early instance of something that comes back in episode six the most strongly. And it's a great instance of them constantly using this sort of like revolutionary language to talk about the the realities of their lives, which 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 is really telling and interesting in a lot of ways. Yeah, and Ken's, I think Ken's only moment of real comfort in this episode is when Rava, his ex-wife, yeah. shows up at, like, four in the morning. And, you know, you can just, you, you can, <laughs> and I didn't even pick up on it. I don't think the first time I watched that he's, when he's hugging her, like, he gets a, he gets a boner and she's like, what? And he's like, it's just my body, you know, like, he says it's adrenaline. It's adrenaline, it's, right? It, and the thing that I, the thing that I was thinking is that the entire episode, he's very Kendall's body language, especially when he's in these situations of where he, you know, he's feeling emotionally conflicted, he doesn't know what to do, is very rigid. It's very stiff. Mm-hmm. And you know, and part of me always thinks that this is you know a deliberate choice that Jeremy Strong is making that is tied to Ken's history with diction. This is somebody who thinks you know. I have to present myself a certain sort of like perfect way in situations. Right. And he has sort of rebuilt this body language for himself to present himself a certain way. But that rigidity becomes a joke when, you know, he, he can't keep himself from getting hard just when he gets, you know, a moment of, of comfort from his, from his ex who he still has, of course, very strong feelings for. Yeah. Right. And he slumped down with her. Like, as you said, throughout the episode, he's so stiff and, you yeah. know, together. And then when he's sitting with her, they're like slumped down and he's open and vulnerable and just like yeah, a different he, person. He he childlike like, is what that scene is. is. They it seem is like children. Yeah. 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 I mean, he obviously, you can get a little bit more insight into how that, marriage dissolved i mean we know that drugs were involved but the level of just like dependency that kendall needs because to like because he he has created like you said like this 
sort of rigid persona for himself because he has to prove to his dad that, you know, he's not just coming out of the loony bin, I think, as, as <laughs> Logan called it, or the nuthouse or something. Right. And for him, Rava is, like, his sanctuary, and, like, he just melts into her, and he's so dependent on her, and I think we see that a little bit more as the season goes on, I mean, and it, she'll always be in his life. I mean, they share children together, so part of the picture. But, yeah, you can really see that Ken just has nowhere else to sort of channel his vulnerabilities, and so it all went on to her, and, you know, you, you, you kind of can understand why she wouldn't be able to tolerate something like that it's just too much to to shoulder sure the one person he does turn to over the course of the episode is frank who was you know let go rather unceremoniously by logan in the previous episode and now is somebody that they're considering you know to potentially come back and lead the company or to come back on board along with uh kendall and he has this conversation uh, with Ken as they're walking around outside, which is really interesting because I picked up on something that um, that Frank says that I hadn't before, but mostly just because Frank is this very interesting character who I think is a big mark of just kind of the show's sort of confidence in its world building and its characters to me because they never feel the need to quite explain, you know, who Frank is to Ken and all these other people. He makes this speech in the pilot about how he's known Logan for a long time. He has this sort of consigliere role, but ultimately, obviously, in the pilot, he doesn't mean that much to Logan because he lets go of him so easily. So who is he to these other people? You know, he's somebody who Ken sees as somebody who is potentially sort of like an uncle-like or, a you know, a surrogate father figure, and there are other surrogate father figures in the show that we'll get into, but he's also somebody who is sort of aware of how servile he needs to be, and aware that he he uh, does not hold that much power um, in the family. And well, something he says in that conversation, um, uh, Frank says that I am just an attendant lord. Okay, that seems familiar. And I looked it up. This this is a line from T.S. Eliot. It's a line from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But the, but the passage is, No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two. Advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use. Politic, cautious, and meticulous, full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. At times, indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times, the fool. So in that passage, the, or the poem is comparing himself to, you know, sort of a minor character, or maybe to Polonius and Hamlet, somebody who serves the king, uh, but ultimately has no higher narrative function somebody who uh, is ultimately maybe played for a fool by the plot and like talked about like with greg is somebody who has a self-awareness of sort of the part that he plays and that contributes maybe to his sort of overall emotional well-being being a little bit better than those of the roys he absolutely knows where he fits but he also is undoubtedly maybe in terms of logan's world top five in terms of who know who he trusts and we learned that firstly i mean uh, in the first episode yes we know they've had a, a, a very very long relationship and then you, you kind of get thrown off by the fact that logan is just so quick on a whim to get rid of him which again plays into the whole question that's lingering throughout the episode was logan in his right mind or not the day that made all these wacky decisions and um anyway so peter friedman's amazing i think he's great um and I think the bombshell that Jerry drops on Kendall at the end of this episode, it's mentioned that the only people who knew were Logan, Frank, Jerry, and that's it. To that, yeah, well, we that should was... talk about Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Jerry, is stone a cold killer bitch. Stone yeah, cold killer amazing. bitch. She is, <laughs> she is a chief counsel um, for the company. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. is her role. Um, I'm not sure she's introduced with Carl. I'm not sure exactly what Carl's role is. He's played by the great David Rash, who also had a um, a really good part in Ianucci's In the Loop as sort of the uh, Donald Rumsfeld figure. Carl is not as much of a player uh, oh, in the show. Oh, yeah. Because Jerry's, yeah. Jerry's implied to be much closer to the family. She's um, uh, she's Shiv's godmother, I think, or at least her, her late husband was her Shiv's husband godfather. Was, yeah. Husband, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Jerry. Family, at least a point. Um, and other sort of higher-ups in the company. In their scheming, it was funny, uh, when Shiv and Roman are kind of looking at these other figures that, you know, are very close to the company, but they just sort of are very quick to judge them based on how they look. You know, she calls, says Ava, and 
Shiv's like, eh, cunt, you know, <laughs> and it's like, someone else, <laughs> and, she, and Shiv's like, I hate her, I hate him, and then it's like, Rome's like, what about Jerry, she's like, eh, I don't like, I don't love Jerry, and she's like, well, I don't hate Jerry either, <laughs> and so it's just like, this very, like, Shakespearean, like, just dramatic irony and all this funny stuff going on throughout the episode of, of uh, I, I love to see the the Shiv Roman kind of youngest to thinking that they're, you know, that their machinations could like be influential. And so <laughs> Roman, this is an, another hilarious Roman scene trying to court Jerry to take over. And the famous, you know, I suck at the corporate flirt. <laughs> when, um, you know, he's, he's trying to be very like you know and, and I think this goes to what Brandon said in the last episode that that Roman might kind of play more of like a jester role and he's less ambitious and mm. less I, I, I don't know less uptight than compared to Ken but he might have just sort of a better instincts a better sense of you know how to deal with people no, I think that's right. Yeah, I think yeah, I think what you say is exactly right. He he understands people, I think, a little bit better than yeah. Ken does. I think Ken is obsessed with trying to be. He wants to be as ruthless and as cunning as his father, but he hasn't got that cunning. But he right. also can't stop seeing people in that sort of utilitarian way, where he's constantly thinking, "What can this person do for me?" Do but for since me, he can't yeah. read them very well and he's not that smart. He can't get anything out of that. Whereas right. Roman is not necessarily super cunning, but he does know how to just have a conversation with somebody and seem a little yeah. bit more human than Ken does. Absolutely, yeah. You don't sense that Roman is like putting on much of a front. He's pretty unapologetic in who he is, and so he's trying to like be formal with Jerry at first. And then he's just like he just Kieran Culkin just he's so great. He's just like you know I, I can't with with the corporate flirt. I fucking suck at it. You know he kind of just tells her straight up like what's going on we trust you you know where the bodies are buried you probably buried them yourself and she's she's like nope <laughs> so i don't know what do you guys think that tells you that someone like jerry you know and, and the kids even thinking that she she would be interested in that role i'm going to answer but kind of in a roundabout way no, no problem yeah because again this was something i didn't notice and then this was something that showed me that Roman was a lot more smarter and more intuitive in terms of people, perspicacious. After this discussion, he's talking with Shiv about, like, who's going to be CEO, Jerry, you know, and he's like, well, Jerry doesn't want it. What do you think that means? Like, he is aware that, like, the fact that Jerry doesn't want it, maybe there's some fucking real reason, you know, that they shouldn't want to take that load on themselves which i don't see anyone kind of approximate that intuitiveness in terms of other people as they're strategizing in this episode at least it's all pretty one-dimensional and fairly simple but so so back so to answer your question i don't i think it means that she knew about the debt right. and she didn't want to have to deal with the debt and that's the big reason and i think it was really smart of roman to pick up on that um, but, but that's my interpretation in terms of your question, why Jerry wouldn't want to. And my favorite part is he's like, you know, I, I hate corporate flirting. I like to just lube up and fuck. Yeah, right, right. That's the line. <laughs> and I think what he was saying prior to that, to try to like win her over, he's like, you do good things. You're a good thing doer, <laughs> which again was just like, I don't know, really funny to me. Just yeah. so. But then he ends up calling her a, uh, what is it? Stone, Stone cold, cold killer, killer bitch. bitch. And she's like, <laughs> who says you don't know how to flirt? Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's great. I mean, she's so subtle, like so believable in that role as general counsel and, and clearly knows something that um, the kids are surprisingly, I guess, naive to. Like, it's almost like, why would she want to take on that role? I mean, that's a... It's a horrible, horrible job. Uh, again, it goes to the larger sort of uh, theme that, that we've talked about with respect to how the show portrays wealth and what wealth does to people. And, you know, I think Jerry's, she realizes she's perfectly fine getting paid $50 million a year. She's getting paid and that it's like, it's like wanting to be president uh, or worse. Now, speaking of president, did I make this up, or is J. Smith Cameron currently playing Hillary Clinton in a, in a stage play? Really? 
I don't know. Let me look this up. That would be fascinating. I would go see that if it's yeah. Because I I remember I remember talking with some people online at one point about how I have like this sort of uh, uh, fantasy pl- uh, like one act play about <laughs> election night election night twenty sixteen at the at the Javits Center and yeah it would be J Smith Cameron as Hillary Clinton absolutely could, she would Amazing. be great yeah God I hope you didn't just conjure that as like. I remember reading about a play that I, which 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 has Hillary Clinton as a character. I, I think Jay Smith Cameron was in it, but maybe I imagined that. I'm, I'm looking this up, and I'm not yeah. finding it. Anyway, well, there's a lot of drama to be had in that night at the Javits Center. I can only imagine. Uh, My yeah. God, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then you have fucking Podesta coming out <laughs> like a goon. Ugh. We'll, we'll have so, to do a whole separate podcast for my ideas uh, for that for that play. Yeah, totally. <laughs> another another thing that we have neglected to point out, in, and then I think goes into the plus category of uh, Roman being um, a softy and not totally cynical, is he also calls Greg to bring back a worn sweater of Logan. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably because it will make him feel better and he wants to, you know, feel like he, he he's there with his father. And yeah, you know, I, I am in the camp that he is not totally cynical and, you know, really wants to. They all want to make their father happy, mostly for themselves. He's the one that's the le- m- most altruistic about it. And it's less about least about him and more about the father than i think with shiv and roman with shiv and kendall who want to make their dad happy to make themselves feel good i think they're always just really quickly going to be like vying for a corrective experience uh with their dad and that's just a reflection of a a childhood where they weren't with him very often so they're always going to be trying for that corrective experience and we see it throughout the show but anyway brendan well i mean i think what the show is about is that you know especially when you get to the levels of the super wealthy it's not this this one or the other thing where relationships Mm. are either purely altruistic or emotional or they're completely cynical and based on power what they are is that you know those human relationships are corrupted um, by capital, they're corrupted by power and money. What you see in this episode, I think, is indicative of that, and that they all, you know, they all love their father, and they all are, you know, destabilized and upset by the idea of a world without him. But they are unable to really confront those feelings because they have these other concerns about, you know, where do I stand in this new world order in terms of power. Um, and where I, you know, and how I fit within the company, they're unable to just have that relationship. So, I mean, yeah, Rome does have that, that instinctive emotional need for something that smells like his father, something that gives him the feeling of his presence, but he's unable to just hold on to that. It's mixed in with everything else that's poisonous about this family. No, it's black and white, one or the other. <laughs> oh, and that's and that's and that's and, and that uh, and that ties into how I feel about about Frank too. Somebody who you know they 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 might have sort of familial feelings for, but ultimately it's 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 a relationship that is always going to come down to money, just because there's a power imbalance, and you know one's going to win out over the other, but it's all mixed together at the same time. Yeah, well, Good I look call. forward to uh, more Frank and. In- further episodes because i just really like peter friedman i think he's great in this role i think he's really interesting in terms of talking about family dynamics and possible surrogate parents and and um what kind of uh care and moral compass the the roy kids really needed and just uh you know just a general sort of intimacy and and i I just i see peter friedman trying so hard with ken because he can is close to getting it, you know. It's ultimately his his flaw that is his tragic flaw that keeps him from from really getting it. Where someone like like Frank could be you know, really a a guide for for Kendall. But I was I think you guys had both noticed this before, but I didn't. I could be wrong. Did you guys know that Logan grew up poor? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I thought you guys had mentioned that. I had never picked up on that although maybe it's kind of alluded to in terms of you know logan's how logan acts and you know his resentfulness of the kids and stuff but like 
you know, heard it loud and clear in the bi- in the video biography that they had rounded up in case the father passed, in case Logan passed, um, that he grew up poor. And I, I hadn't really fully identified, you know, had that locked in my head. I think, I think that'll probably play a role. I mean, it, it does a lot kind of in some ways um, in terms of the dynamics along this with season one. But I wonder, you know, in season two, how much... If anything, we're going to learn about Logan's past. I imagine a little bit more based on what we see in Austerlitz at the at the end of that episode, which I won't spoil, but... Yeah, they do. There is a little bit of his biography that's dropped in this episode. They say he was born in Dundee, Scotland, which is a fairly large city um, in Scotland. So he didn't grow up far from capital. Although, of course, he did eventually marry into money. His, his first yeah, wife. Well, I, I think okay. their family started out in Canada, right? Isn't the story that the Roy parent, the Roy dad, Logan's father, had like a small printing press, small newspaper somewhere in, in Canada? Because they're Canadian. They grew up in Canada. So it went from Scotland to Canada. And that's why, you know, his brother is still in Canada, but then he took it. I think this is said during Frank's speech in the pilot. Oh, right, where he toasts him. Yeah, that it was like a small outfit in Canada that eventually, you know, turned into this this media conglomerate, which I don't know if it is, is like an analog to Murdoch or, or any of those other guys. I'm not sure if they, um, if any of those guys had like similar, you know, I, I don't know if they drew that comparison or not, but yeah, it's definitely interesting. It definitely plays into the feeling that you're in like a very old money setting. But Brendan said they did. He did marry into old money. The Shiv, the Shiv, the Roy kids are you know half blue blooded. Their mom is has a title. I think she was a lady, which is like a low end title, but it's still, um, you know, she had like a fucking <laughs> castle. So <laughs> I'm not gonna sneeze at that. It's also just interesting in terms of of his sort of rough and tumble attitude that seems very boomer like even though he's born be- before the war seems very much like the you know oh, i have no empathy for the kids joe biden you know hard scrabble <laughs> um and and logan is very much like that i mean he's not helicopter parenting his kids and that's a very um you know that's not an old money thing that's well, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, there are sort of generational dynamics at play there. You know, it's also interesting, you know, he, he sort of vacillates between this wanting to set his children up for success and also kind of resenting them for that. You know, yeah. they have those conversations in the second half of the season where they lay all that uh, all that out quite plainly. But, you know, he, you know, obviously Ken had his, his fall from grace and then Logan helped him back you know, to the position he's in now, you know, the position he's in now, he wouldn't have, you know, got there obviously without Logan. So he, you know, he does want his family to sort of, you know, do him proud and be able to sort of at least be by his side. But then, you know, he also seems quite capricious as we see in the pilot where he realizes, Hmm, you know, maybe this was the wrong decision after all, which is probably something that he wasn't unaware of. Um, but he just changes his mind on the spot. Do you think he changed his mind on the spot? I mean, that's what the, that's what the filmmaking seems to imply. The way it's sort of, you know, he seems to be sort of testing Ken uh, with mm-hmm. this uh, throughout the day. decision yeah. to sign the change of trust without a lawyer present. You know, so he uh, he he does seem to set up this kind of trap. Um, but at the same time, it's like you know, you couldn't, you know, why set Ken up for this position? <laughs> you know, you can't be unaware of what his weaknesses are, right? So right, and why set a trap if you're already confident in that decision yeah maybe he hopes he can prove him wrong or he wants to give ken one more failure and disappointment to experience <laughs> so it could be a i'd <laughs> lean more into that uh that um yeah. interpretation myself one of my favorite lines in this whole series is from episode nine well not not just not lines but delivery when uh, he's having a very sort of fraught conversation with kendall and uh, Ken says, why are you doing this or whatever? And he gives him this devilish grin and goes, I'm just a lovely guy. <laughs> I don't remember that. I love that so much. Um, yeah, that, that that's... Logan does have his, like, his Trumpian moments. I know we talked about this, like, very briefly, I think, <laughs> the first time. 
Um, but I, I recalled one time actually in the a terrible T-ball scene where he has sort of like a, a weird <laughs> Trump moment where he's just not at all aware of what's going on before his eyes in terms of the kid with the baseball and, and Roman with the check and just that all that discomfort and after it's all over and Roman rips the check up in front of the kid's eyes and you know your stomach is just like oh like this just a, it's so awful it's so cringeworthy and then <laughs> just the kid is Rome, uh, Logan is just like sitting in his lawn chair and the kid walks by and he goes magnificent son he's completely unaware of just like how awkward everything is and and what just went down like you know has no no, nothing to say about it but you know tells this the the kid magnificent son (laughs) and to me it was just like it was it was so something that like that it was such a trump uh disengagement with you know i don't need to be paying attention to this but you know yeah well the show is not about trump but i think it's but it's canny in the way that it, it, I think it apprehends what these sort of characters are like, these sort of, you know, rich aging uh, patriarchs and um, um, where they've accrued wealth and no longer have to do very much to hold on to it. You know, what they're like and what sort of old age plays, uh, plays into that and what sort of, you know, cultural dynamics play into that. It's not about Trump or Murdoch or any, you know, one person. Um, but, you know, more interestingly, it's about the characteristics that sort of tie these people together and how they come to be who they are. And even, you know, when the show is sort of showing showing that through absence in these first few episodes where Logan is not as present as he is later on. One of the things I really liked about this show, which I think they, they did in the first show and they do in a, in a few episodes, but um, how they cap it off where they give you a shot of every kind of main character where they are, how they are at that moment, and kind of... Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, they show you Kendall in the car sleeping or trying to and Shiv with Tom, and and they just... They clip on... And Marsha settling in at the hospital, putting the blanket over her. I I really think... I I really like how they cap off the episodes that way when they do. We didn't talk about the big moment at the end of the episode that sort of... um, Don't jump. (laughs) <laughs> that's right well, what, well we should well we should talk about the very we should talk yeah. about the scene before the end where uh they, there's that really uh sort of beautifully shot rooftop scene between jerry and ken where you know the sun is coming up they've had this very long night where the future of the company is at stake and then it's finally decided that ken is going to take over as ceo roman is coo there's much back padding to be had and then jerry says okay we've made this decision great, I got to talk to you about something and immediately drops the bomb on him that, Hey, the company is like $3 billion in debt because your dad made this bad deal back in the eighties when he was expanding into parks. And you know, the terms of the deal are such that the stock drops below a certain price, which it may with all this uncertainty at the moment with the CEO being in a coma, they can pursue repayment in full, meaning they would be on the hook for three billion dollars and right. uh, that's and that's the immediate sort of plot that uh that ken is going to have to contend with to prove himself is how is he going to get them out of this hole and that uh, comes to have you know quite serious ramifications for the rest of the season and the chain of events that that sets off but that's sort of the last bit of plot business that happens before the stinger which is this montage of everybody sort of driving home at dawn falling asleep and then uh, as everyone is falling asleep, uh, Logan is waking up in the hospital, right. which is a sort of right. everyone's eyes closed. Yeah. Everyone's eyes closed and his open up. Yeah, is, I liked how they ended is, that, Kate, how you said with, earlier with, uh, I think that they've done it before or they. Yeah, they do. It they did in the on. first episode and showing the, the baseball, fa- the family at baseball, you know, back in their apartment. The, they do this. Yeah, the cityscape. It's a little bit different, but yeah, but. Yeah, wraps up nicely, sets it up very well for the next episode. Um, and then, you know, so we know now that Logan is, you know... Gonna live, probably. Clear. He's alive. <laughs> he's in the opening credits. He's not leaving. He's, not he's dead. coming back. He's not dead, so... I, I <laughs> thought, when I first watched this, that he was dead. Like, this, right. like when I watched the first episode, and this, like, I thought that this he was dead, this was it. I didn't pay attention. Like I said, I went into the show so green. 
scene. I didn't know he, you know, Brian Cox or right, know that exactly. he was through the don't entire know who Brian Cox is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or that you're he, probably not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just assumed like, oh wow, he dies. So now Kendall yeah, you know, I didn't think he was gonna wake up and that surprised yeah. me. Did that surprise you, Gabby, too? Yeah, just because I, I didn't recognize Brian Cox at first. And I'm like, obviously, if I had known, you know, realized who he was, I was like, they wouldn't just, you know, throw him in here for an episode and a half. Um, but yeah, I thought he was just right. going to die. And, you know, we'd go from there. But th- I think it's clearly uh, Brian Cox aside, his amazing performance aside, even if it was just some generic actor, it's much more interesting this way, plot wise. Yeah, because it's not just this question of, you know, the siblings squabbling among themselves you know one of the big comparison points everybody made i think to this show was king lear um Mm -hmm. where it you know becomes more about the ramifications of the siblings actions and the children whereas lear sort of becomes this more marginalized figure but that's not the case in this story logan's marginalized at first because of his illness but he is you know as we'll see in the next few weeks is intent on fighting his way back to his position correct Anybody have final thoughts on um, shit show at the fuck factory? I'm sorry, is that is that what the the actual article title that that mm-hmm. Lawrence publishes is? Shit show at the fuck factory. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Without the asterisks, but ruthless for, with yes. the asterisks for HBO. <laughs> I just wanted to add. We've talked about the or we did in the first one the score. I really you know love the opening song, but they also have. The music, like when Greg's at uh, at the house, I don't know how to characterize it exactly, but I really like the use of music throughout the show, and not only the opening song, but they have some other great. Yeah, well, they they play with the score a lot, mm-hmm. um, and kind of switch it up. And, yeah, yeah, so and they do in the new trailer. We will be back next time with episode three. Lifeboats, which is <laughs> I, think, I fucking love this I, episode. It is. It, it's. It, this is it one was. of the episodes that I think. I think it's one of the episodes that I think. I think the least of overall, even though a fair amount of stuff happens in it that is fairly important for the overall arc of the season. Um, but it doesn't feel particularly momentous while it's happening. It's more about sort of getting more into the rhythm of things back at Waystar Royco. And more importantly, it's just a, it's mostly just a very funny episode. It um, is. As we'll, very good we'll talk about next time. We're hoping to have uh, maybe a special guest next time. So we'll hear from them as well as us. And, and once again, this has been uh, the Roycast. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye.